Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Esther 1 from July 26th, 2020. Happy listening, and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Hello and welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Robertson, biblical scholar and director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text both as scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we continue our summer series on the forgotten books of the Bible with a look at Esther 1, 1 to 22, the story of the Persian queen Vashti and her refusal to appear before the king. We discuss the fragile egos of the king and his courtiers who fear the capacity of women to say no. We talk about the power of the patriarchy and the links it will go to to suppress voices of dissent. We admire Vashti's courage to protect her own sense of dignity and the dignity of all women, even though it costs her the crown. And we wonder about the ripple effects of such acts of courage, which make ruling ideologies tremble, if only for a moment. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you, Bobby? I'm doing really great. I am ready to party like Xerxes or Ahasuerus, <laughs> but Ahasuerus is so hard to say. It, I actually was wondering before this whether we say that name the same way. We, we say so not, many names not differently. So different. We do. We say so many names differently, but I would say Ahasuerus, which is not that different than what you just said. So that's good. I was going to warn is more people. Like, yours is more like thoughtful or like mine's a hasawaris which is like like i rolled out of bed and i just said it right yours is like (laughs) but yours rolls right off the tongue i have to think very hard it does it's a hard name so we're moving into the fifth of our five books of the forgotten books of the bible the book of esther and so we'll be talking about esther this week and again next week so can you just give us some background about the book of esther in general as we approach this text So the book of Esther is a pretty fantastical short story. It's sort of a comedy where the reader's expectations are constantly flouted. Like it's a series of the most ridiculous and exaggerated and extreme things you can imagine. I have not yet encountered a scholar who thinks that this is a historical account of anything or that it's trying to be a historical account or that ancient readers would have thought that this was a historical account. Like this really is a short story. Yeah. And we can learn a lot from short stories about what was going on in people's minds and what were the issues of the day and how did they understand the world around them. And I think with with some important functions for the community, sort Mm. of addressing... In a lighthearted way, some of the inherent problems of being a minority people and, you know, the lack of autonomy you might feel, the way that an entire people is judged and punished based on one person having upset one other person. Yeah. All this stuff sort of gets gets played out in the text in very amusing ways. Yeah. The story is set in the Persian court, probably written sometime between 400 and 300 BCE. 
And the king, Ashash, I, <laughs> the king. <laughs> you say Ahasuerus. <laughs> it's so hard to say. Is probably a fictionalized version of Xerxes I. This particular story in the Hebrew text has no mention of God at all. Yeah. Or any like praying or like really explicit religious activity in yeah. that way. That's right. It's much more like a, a big raucous comedy. I think you're right that this is a that this is a raucous and funny story. I also think I mean it ends with a mass killing. And so <laughs> like it is only funny <laughs> to a degree. You don't find that funny? <laughs> <laughs> and so like to me this is one of the things that sits with intention in this text. Like for half the text, the Jews are under threat of being exterminated themselves. And then at the end of the text, they defensively counterattack and destroy. Mm -hmm. I forget. It's a huge number of people, though, like 75,000 yeah, or something. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which one can read that as comedic as well. When you're, you know, if, if you're a people group who's experiencing threat from the outside and you're, you tell a story about how you, in fact, dominate everyone else, like that can be comedic in its own way. But there is a there is a tragic kind of element that underlies this text even while it is kind of over the top and funny. You were talking about how the text sort of deals with issues of what does it mean to be in a minority in an empire that is not run by you? Mm -hmm. And so in this sort of tale is sort of helping people think through some of those issues. I, I think that's right. And I think that one of the things that it's dealing with is this possibility that there's kind of anti-Jewish sentiment that kind of lurks just under the surface of the empire that's just mm -hmm. looking for an opportunity to to rise to the top. And that maybe that's always the case for Jews and for other other minoritized people, that mm -hmm. there is always going to be some element of an empire that's ready to turn on them. So there's this sense of danger in this text. And one of the ways I think of sort of coping with the danger is through humor and being a little mm -hmm. raucous. And so this this text is really rich that way. It's it's dealing with some really difficult things in some pretty humorous ways. One last thing I would say in introduction is that this book, the book of Esther, contains the etiology for the Jewish holiday Purim. Yeah. Which is like kind of like a carnivalesque kind of holiday that's filled with costumes and carnivals and drinking, much like this book is. <laughs> And that's, that's where this book is chanted in the Jewish yeah. calendar. Very good. So today, perhaps a little bit ironically, we're not actually going to talk about Esther herself. We're going to save that for next week. The book is introduced by this sort of, it's a sort of a self-contained story about another queen, the original queen of Ahasuerus, whose name is Vashti. And it, this text, this chapter raises a lot of the themes that are going to kind of get played out in the book of Esther. But it's really background. But I think it's such a fascinating text in its own way mm -hmm. that we thought we would spend a week of our podcast talking about this one. Mm -hmm. So I will just start in. We're in Esther chapter 1. We're reading the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 22. And so I will just start in verse 1. This is what happened back when Ahasuerus lived. The very Ahasuerus who ruled from India to Kush 127 provinces in all. At that time, Ahasuerus ruled the kingdom from his royal throne in the fortified part of Susa. In the third year of his rule, he hosted a feast for all his officials and courtiers. 
that leaders of Persia and Media attended along with his provincial officials and officers. He showed off the awesome riches of his kingdom and beautiful treasures as mirrors of how very great he was. The event lasted a long time, six whole months to be exact. So here's our first kind of introduction to Ahasuerus. It's quite a portrait that it's has been very, painted. It's very here. grand. Yes, yeah. this is this is very grand. And there are, in fact, mirrors for the grandness so we can reflect the over-the-topness into like an infinity mirror situation. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Six months. He had a six-month banquet. Six-month banquet whose purpose was to show off how great he was. Yes. <laughs> like, I love, like the ego strength of this guy is really amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Although he's also quite a fragile figure, as we'll see. So this kind of combination Indeed. of like, I need everyone to know I'm important and I'm really afraid that maybe I'm not important. It, it's funny how those things go hand in hand, isn't it? It is. What a, <laughs> yes. See how these is. short stories can inform us <laughs> about our lives? So one of the things that's always interested me about this text is he has invited all the officials from all over the empire to party in his palace for six months. And so like, I just have always wondered like who's running the empire. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like all the officials well, and provincial governors and everybody are like, ha- are like having a party and there's nobody left. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the characterization of Ahasuerosh is that he's like, He's kind of a tool. Like he's not really doing anything. <laughs> yeah. He's enjoying the the trappings of his power very yeah. much. But he doesn't he doesn't really do he doesn't do much. <laughs> yeah, he does you know? not care about actually like passing laws or like governing people. As we'll see, he'll he passes off a lot of decisions to the people he like his advisors. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's like a figurehead. That last line, we mentioned this, but just to come back to say, he showed off the awesome riches of his kingdom as mirrors of how very great he was. So he's showing off his stuff so that you will think he is amazing. And that's mm-hmm. going to be important in just a minute when we get introduced to Queen Vashti. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so moving on in verse five. After that, <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> After that, the king held a seven-day feast for everyone in the fortified part of Susa. Whether they were important people in the town or not, they all met in the walled garden of the royal palace. White linen curtains and purple hangings were held up by shining white and red-purple ropes tied to silver rings and marble posts. Gold and silver couches sat on a mosaic floor made of gleaming purple crystal, marble, and mother-of-pearl. They served the drinks in cups made of gold, and each cup was different. The king made sure there was plenty of royal wine. The rule about the drinks was no limits. The king had ordered everyone <laughs> serving wine in the palace to offer as much as each guest wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti held a feast for women in King Ahasuerus's palace. So he's had a six-month party for the whole empire, and now he follows that up by having a one-week party just for the people who live in the capital city. Right, and the first party was for like the important people, like the governors and the yeah. nobles from the whole empire, right? And then the second party is for everybody. All the commoners can come too, but yeah. just in just in this province. That's nice of him. That is nice of him, yeah. But he still wants to show off his power. He's I mean, still look at this, this, stuff. this yeah, description sure. of where they are is just ridiculous. Yeah, uh, my favorite detail is they serve drinks and cups made of gold and each cup was different. <laughs> I love that. It reminds me of like... <laughs> One of my friends says this is Mark's 
marks me as a middle-aged person, but um, my spouse and I, when we travel, we get mugs from the very various places where we go and stay. And so we have this mug collection. And so when we serve coffee at our house, you might get a mug that's from our trip to Moab in Arison, <laughs> Utah, or you might get a trip, a mug from Yellowstone or wherever, wherever. And so then when you look at your mug, you're like, oh, this is a very interesting mug. And we're like, well, let us tell you about the time that we went to Utah, you know? And so you think that's kind of maybe what he's doing here a little bit is say, like showing off, like, look at all these different, like this one's from Ethiopia and this one is from Kush and this one's from India. See, this might also mark me as a middle-aged person, but I was thinking of like when you go to a party and it, and everyone has wine glasses and you have those little like taggy things you put on the bottom so you of know your it's wine yours. glass <laughs> so you know it's yours. So you can, like, pick out your tag when you come yeah. in. <laughs> that is the most boring interpretation of that line <laughs> I have ever heard. They wanted your to make sure everyone, it's like writing your name on your cup in a Sharpie. <laughs> That'd be my party. <laughs> he made sure everyone... <laughs> and everyone got a red Solo cup and a Sharpie to write thine name. Mm. So we've got gender segregated parties here. Yeah. For me, it, undersc- it further underscores the extent to which this celebration is totally over the top. Like, it's a big party with, like, side parties. Yeah. Going on at the same time. Yeah. And it gives me a little... Not to get ahead of ourselves too much, but a little glimpse of into the life that Vashti is about to give up. That she yeah. has, she has, it seems like she has autonomy over her space. Yeah. And she has her own group of friends and she can throw her own banquet. And, you know, she's included in some way in, in yeah. this over the top celebration. Doesn't have to be in the room with her husband. Which sounds good to me because he's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that that last point, I think, is important because, I mean, you're you're imagining the men's party as like a, seven days of people just drinking as much as mm-hmm. they want for seven mm-hmm. days, like all men. Like, this is not this is not a place party. you want to be as a woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. So picking up in verse 10. On the seventh day, when wine had put the king in high spirits... He gave an order to Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served King Ahasuerus personally. They were to bring Queen Vashti before him wearing the royal crown. She was gorgeous, and he wanted to show off her beauty both to the general public and to his important guests. But Queen Vashti refused to come as the king had ordered through the eunuchs. you have thoughts about that invitation and her response to it? So many thoughts. Where yeah. do I start with my thoughts? I mean, so there's a, a midrash about this, and I've I first learned the story with the midrash. So then I I wonder if if you have heard this also that the um, request that she come wearing the royal diadem meant only that, yeah, and that she was going to parade herself around naked. Have you heard that before? I have heard that. Yeah, but as you're saying, like in some ways, that's just a more extreme version of what is clearly happening. Yeah, which is. That she's being completely objectified and brought into a space where women don't typically go entirely to make another showing of Ahasuerus's power. Yeah. There's a, a Christian feminist you may be familiar with, Harriet Beatrice Stowe, mm. um, who lived in the 19th century, who said Vashti's refusal was the first stand for women's rights. Yeah. Which in a, a lot of really important ways it is. You know, she she won't objectify herself for her king's aggrandizement yeah and there's some there's some 
rabbinic interpretations about sort of how how this scene goes down and there's some different artistic portrayals of like what exactly we imagine happened who was in the room when the eunuchs talked to vashti Mm. was this like a public or a private conversation yeah there's a, a midrash that she sent the messengers back three times trying to talk the king down from this and trying to use different kinds of logic Saying, like, if they see me and think I'm beautiful, then they will want to sleep with me and they'll kill you. But if they think I'm ugly, then you'll be disgraced. Oh, yeah. Like, trying to persuade him that this is just a really, this is a bad idea. Like, you're, go home, you're drunk. Yeah. But he would not be deterred. And her refusal to come, and, you know, we might want to, I'll probably want to talk more about this later. But her refusal to come really does kind of have ripple effects in a really interesting way, as we'll see as we go. And I, you know, one of the things that I always wonder in this text is to what extent did Vashti understand or anticipate Mm -hmm. the ripple effect she was going to have? Mm -hmm. And knowing what is going to happen to her in the text that we're about to read, would she have done it the same way over again? Uh, And we don't get any real insight into into her um, thoughts about any of that. And so it creates this really kind of interesting opening for thinking about like what are the risks and rewards of taking a stand in this kind of patriarchal sexist interaction Mm -hmm. yeah okay so picking up then in verse 13 now when a need arose the king would often talk with certain very smart people about the best way to handle it they were people who knew both the kingdom's written laws and what judges had decided about cases in the past the ones he talked with most often were Karshna, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Memukan. They were seven very important people in Persia and Media who, as the kingdom's highest leaders, were in the king's inner circle. So the king said to them, According to the law, what should I do with Queen Vashti, since she didn't do what King Ahasuerus ordered her through the eunuchs? Okay, I have a couple of, of thoughts on this, this tiny little section. Yeah. One is that, in terms of what what at least I think I know about the Persian court system, one one thing is that they're really interested in in law and procedures and written law. Like yeah. it's around this time that the Israelite community that sort of is transitioning to becoming the Jewish community, right, you know, is asked, what is your law? And that, you know, writes down the Torah and like that sort of becomes the official thing. But there's an yeah. interest in the kingdom in what is, the, what's the official procedure here? Yeah. And I find it comical here that, like, the king is upset at his wife and he has to call in his, like, courtiers to say, like, what is the official procedure for I'm mad at my wife? (laughs) Yeah. And they give him an official procedure for it. So I see it as sort of mocking of both the king and of the obsession of this court with looking up a procedure for everything. I think that's really insightful. And I mean, this king is driven by his passions and by his emotions. He's really incapable of action. He he never knows what to do. He's always got to ask somebody. And as you're Mm -hmm. saying, even in this very personal moment of his wife said no to him, he he needs somebody else to kind of tell him how he should act. Mm -hmm. He's being simultaneously kind of displayed as like powerful. Like he is the king of this enormous empire and like completely incapable of of handling any kind anything of action. yeah yeah he he is a man of big feelings <laughs> yeah. do you feel like we're like i feel like 
it would be perceived that we're subtweeting our current administration, <laughs> like this whole podcast. But we're not. I'm we're just ju- talking about the I text. I am just reading the text. <laughs> I know. I'm just reading. That is what it says. Yes. You can see <laughs> not too far behind this story of Esther and what she and what was happening in this world of Persia, of the Persian Empire, is not too distant from our own time and things that happen in our own empire and you can just scratch a little bit behind the surface and you can start to learn some things and uh, think about some things relevant to our own day but i get ahead of myself so the king has asked according to this law that we value so much what should i do when i'm mad at my (laughs) my wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) what does my instruction manual say (laughs) yeah and so here's the response i i'm so this response to me is so fascinating Mm-hmm. Then Memukan spoke up in front of the king and the officials. Queen Vashti, he said, has done something wrong, not just to the king himself. She has also done wrong to all the officials and the peoples in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. This is the reason. News of what the queen did will reach all women, making them look down on their husbands. They will say, King Ahasuerus ordered servants to bring Queen Vashti before him, but she refused to come. This very day, the important women of Persia and media who hear about the queen will tell the royal officials the same thing. There will be no end of put-downs and arguments. Now, if the king wishes, let him send out a royal order and have it written into the laws of Persia and media, laws no one can ever change. It should say that Vashti will never again come before King Ahasuerus. It should also say that the king will give her royal place to someone better than she. When the order becomes public through the whole empire, vast as it is, All women will treat their husbands properly. The rule should touch everyone, whether from an important family or not. I mean, this is just so, oh, it's so, this like fear that people, that women will realize that all along they've had the power to say no to their husbands. Like, we can't let them realize that, you know? I really think goes back to what you said at the beginning, that they're, the king does have a, a huge ego and sort of sense of power, but there's this really, it's ve- it's like paper thin, you know, it's really fragile. And yeah. once, once they realize that, you know, wives can say no to their husbands, what if the other wives realize that? <laughs> yeah. Then they, you, they're like writing eternal decrees that can never be overturned. Like it gets yeah. so, it gets so out of hand. I don't know. <laughs> How do you read this, Buffy? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like, there, there's so many things that are going on in this in this little passage. One is exactly along those lines. Like suddenly, the king's kind of fragile ego has become the fragile egos of all men of the empire, maybe of mm-hmm. all men. Full stop. Right. Suddenly, we realize that we, uh, this power that men think they have over women is not a natural thing. It is an ideology that has inserted itself so deeply that everyone assumes it to be true. And suddenly they realize that it's actually kind of thin and fragile and could disappear at any moment. Secondly, you were talking about before how the Persians were really interested in law and like finding case law for like what ought to be done. But here the law is actually being used exactly as a pretense to deal with something that has nothing whatever to do with the law. Right. Mm -hmm. So this says. I've been personally offended and I want to do something about it. What law can I use? Mm -hmm. And what the advisors come up with is 
yeah, we're personally offended too. And we don't want to have to deal with this stuff. So here's a new law. And the new mm-hmm. law is going to say women have to obey their husbands. And so there is this sort of thin kind of overlay of the law matters. But in fact, what's being ha- what's happening is this idea of the law is being manipulated to serve mm-hmm. the personal interests of the powerful people. Mm-hmm. And in this case of, of men in a patriarchal society. Yes, I think that's a really good point. It, it, th- this sense, at least from his advisors, that like the, you can use law to solve any problem you have. And then an awareness that people will look to the laws as, as having some kind of inherent meaning by virtue of the fact that they're laws. Right. Yeah. So if you can get it codified, you're good. Even though we just made up this law in order Even to deal we just with, made it up. with this specific situation, which was personally troublesome to us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I mean, so this is I'm asking you to just imagine behind the text. But these men think that their wives, it has never occurred to them. <laughs> that they could say no that can't be right can it i don't know because again i mean we're in this like fictional fantasy world so yeah. I f- you know i feel like it we're in a like we're sort of making in a fictional fantasy world that sort of makes fun of the persians so i don't know maybe in that fictional fantasy world that's possible yeah i had sort of the similar question i think is like why do they think all the women of persia are going to come to know what happened yeah like is that a reasonable fear or is that just like some kind of crazy paranoia on their part i mean i had just read it as like this is a kind of a big shocking thing that has happened and it happened at a party where all the like it wasn't just in a like small sequestered elite group it was like all the people of the capital city as you were saying before no matter kind of their station and so people talk and that's going to get out now whether it would actually get Mm -hmm. from Persia, you know, to Ethiopia, like that seems kind of um, right, right. But within but- Shushan, yeah, I guess it makes me go back to like thinking about these artistic portrayals of where Vashti is when she refuses. But I guess you're right. I don't know how public the king was. You know, he says he tells his eunuchs to go get her. But I envision this king like he is very into himself, and he is very confident, even where confidence might not actually be warranted. So I don't imagine he pulled aside his eunuchs and very cautiously said, hey, could you go see if (laughs) Vashti will come to the party? (laughs) I imagine he stood up in front of everyone and said, I am King Ahasuerus and I beckon Vashti to come. And then no matter like whether the conversation was actually public or not. Now, when she doesn't come, everyone's like, (laughs) dude, what happened to your wife? Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. So let's finish out this text and then, well, there's a lot still to talk about, but um, the last two verses of this passage. The king liked the plan, as did the other men, and he did just what Memucan said. He sent written orders to all the king's provinces. Each province received it written in its own alphabet and each people received it in its own language. It said that each husband should rule over his own house. So thoughts about that edict as a solution to the, to the problem? I mean, it seems to me like this could have been addressed much differently, (laughs) even if, you know, that it could have been. So so later in the book, when Esther is concerned about coming into the presence of the king when she has not been called. Yeah. The issue that she's concerned about is that you can't come in, is that he's the king. Yeah. You know, 
So it seems like this could have been dealt with in a way that addressed the particular situation more specifically, which was that someone refused the king. Right. But the people who are writing the edict, they're not kings. Right. (laughs) You know, they're just men. And so in their best interest is to say, the issue is not that you're king. The issue is that you are a man. And we are men too. And, you know, and so it's, it really has been manipulated by the, the, uh, what are they, what are they described as? His advisors? I've been Um, calling them his advisors. Yeah. So that it's written as officials. What's in, what's in their best interest. And I, I go back and forth between thinking that the, the officials manipulate the king in their own interest here. And then thinking, well, I mean, maybe they actually have a point. And, you know, I think it's not simply that they're worried that their wives are going to say no to them. But Mm -hmm. it is also that this kind of power structure that the whole empire is founded on, which is in part a patriarchal power structure that assumes that women can't say no to men, which also assumes that probably the common folks can't say no to elite folks. Like suddenly, if you realize you can refuse, like, where does that end? Right. I mean, the power structure only works if every, if the people within it are all on board or complicit or, right. you know, like if, if everyone who didn't have power in the system were to decide that they're just going to start a new system, then it would crumble. You know, yeah. it's always the, the fear of the elite or the fear of the, the folks that, that do have power in the current structure. So Vashti herself gets deposed. We don't quite know what happens to her. She either gets sort of locked away in the tall tower or maybe she's put to death, although it just says she'll never see the king again, never come before the king again. But she she loses her position. She loses her access to power. I mean, I guess the question that is in my head is, was it worth it? And I'm not sure if you can actually, if if we can actually evaluate that from our vantage point, but I'm just curious what you're kind of, take on that is was it was it worth it for her i do not envision that she regrets her decision and i imagine that she knew her husband and knew that he might respond in this way i mean if you know that your your husband's obsessed with his own grandeur and he asks you to come trot out like this seems to me like it was the final straw and that she need to claim some autonomy over her own body even if she was losing other kinds of power that she might have had. Like if you have to choose a power to have to have power just over that, just over your own body and your decisions about your body, that seems like a pretty good place to start. Yeah. But I I mean I think I think she's an important role model for this willingness to give up certain privileges and trappings of those privileges in order to have the most basic self-determination. Yeah. There's there's some I mentioned earlier there are some interesting artistic depictions of Vashti and of different parts of this story. I think precisely because there's so many ga- there's so much we don't know. Like yeah, there's so yeah, many absolutely. gaps in it and how you picture it all going down really affects how you interpret the story. And there's one depiction in particular from the end of the 19th century a British artist named Ernest Normand that depicts Vashti not as she's saying no to the eunuchs, which is what most of the depictions are, but after she's been banished, but she hasn't left yet. Mm. So she's like laying on a very ornate bed with like very fancy sheets and like flowers and fruit and like all this, you know, all the trappings of a queen. And she's not, she's like laying on the bed and just sort of like staring off, but not particularly sad looking. Hmm. 
just, I guess, sort of waiting to see what's going to happen next. But there's another woman in the picture who's sitting on the floor at the foot of the bed, like weeping grievously. Um, And the other woman is not wearing a shirt and is wearing not royal clothing. Like maybe she was a servant of Vashti's. I don't know. And, And that picture made me think of the whole system that Vashti is willing, has to be willing to disrupt. Like when she leaves the palace, what happens to her servants or what, I don't know, like, as you're saying, like, what is the, what is the trickle down? Like, what's the trickle down for the women of Shushan? What's the trickle down for the women of the palace? It's a lot of pressure for her, for Vashti to have to sort of make her own, you know, like these are her own feelings of self-determination, but then also to be part of this community of women. Yeah. As a, you know, again, one of the sort of like minority groups that like you act for yourself and do your the best you can in your own interest. Yeah. But somehow it then has ramifications for all of your quote unquote people, whatever right. is determined your people are. So yeah. That's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. That's really, yeah, that's really well said. So we've been gesturing kind of all along about ways that this text might connect to contemporary life. But I'm curious, just with if I put that question to you, as we do every week, like what seems to be the sort of primary connection that you're seeing with our world today? I feel like there's a right answer to that question, and this is not it. But it's my <laughs> honest answer. <laughs> there's never a right answer. Well, there's there's a field of right answers. Um, <laughs> but I'll, where, I'll tell you where I feel pulled right now. Yeah, and it is about the way that sort of private, personal conflicts or decisions get played out in a public sphere mm. in a way that for that that they lose all of their nuance and sort of humanity and just become about like fears and laws and control yeah. in a way that I don't think that they always do in personal relationships there's actually the historian Herodotus claims that Persians the Persian community would often make decisions while drunk, <laughs> but then revisit them when sober to see if they were good decisions. <laughs> like they did this on purpose. <laughs> like, let's get drunk and make some laws. Uh, may- maybe, maybe. <laughs> and and then we'll see if we like them, you know, after we <laughs> sober up. That's awesome. And then there's a related midrash that when Ahasuerus sort of gets his wits about him again, he asks for his wife. He asks for Vashti. He doesn't remember Mm. that this has happened, but it's too late because the edict has already been... And it can never be taken back. It can never be taken back. The text is very clear, like, no backsees. And I don't know, I guess it just, it, it makes me think about about Vashti and Ahasuerus and what... Ahasuerus is a terribly flawed character, but what was their relationship really, and how did all these people on the outside come to take a moment of, like... Mm. A bad moment with conflict and like really, I mean, a bad moment for sure in a relationship, but that it somehow became like reified as the only moment. And we're going to build up a bunch of Hmm. laws on our fears about what that means for later and the implications of that. And it's going to infect, it's going to affect the whole community that we're a part of. There's, I don't know. I feel like it drains all the humanity out of it. I mean, this is a comedy, so I guess that's. I mean, I shouldn't say it's a comedy comedy, but it's a very exaggerated story. So there's yeah. not there's not going to be nuance in the character yeah. portrayals. But I feel some 
I think reading all the midrash be- behind the scenes that are trying to imagine these characters as fuller people. Yeah. It makes it sad. It makes it sadder for me. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Because this is, in that sense, a comedy. But there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of, it's not a nuanced text exactly, but there's a lot that it's kind of working with in this sort of comedic form. It's raising all kinds of really kind of urgent issues. What, where, do you, where do you come to? So I read Vashti as having made a strategic choice on behalf of the women of the empire. This might be a kind of a hopeful reading. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it, the text is open to it. And I think that Vashti has realized that she has a moment available to her where she can change the way that the patriarchal power structure works in the Persian empire. And that moment is given to her by her position of power in, in relative to the king. And also by this sort of, as I read it, the king has sort of publicly said, here, I'm going to call my queen. And so she has this moment where she can say no and mm-hmm. publicly embarrass the king. She, I think she does this on purpose because she knows that it's going to get out there. People are going to talk about this. And, and so women of the empire are going to realize that they too can say no. And so she, I read Vashti as sort of, in that sense, self-sacrificing, like she's willing to give up her, her position, her power in society in order to make the world better for the women of her time. Now, I struggle a little bit with whether that's actually what she ends up having done or not, or whether the passing of this law just kind of undoes what she'd like, makes it even kind of worse because now it's written in the law code. But what I've come to think about that is that ideologies, as, as Marx told us, like it best when they can function as though they are natural ways of things. And so patriarchy wants you to not realize that there's a patriarchy. Mm-hmm. It, it wants you to think that n- naturally women can't say no to men. And so when Vashti takes this action and says, actually, we can say no, then the patriarchy loses a little bit of power. And when it gets codified into the law, now there's a law on the books that like is having to mm-hmm. reinforce the power of the patriarchy, which previously seemed natural and unquestionable. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. one step closer, even though it seems like maybe a step in the wrong direction, it in fact has created something that can be challenged and seen and i like to think that some of the women of the empire maybe esther being one of them because she lived in susa and maybe she was at this party i like to think some of the women got inspired anyway in their own modes of resistance despite the fact that there is a law even though we don't have any obviously access to those stories so when i read the story of vashti and i read it for today what what i see is sort of a challenge to modern people to say what positions of power or authority or privilege do we have and how can we exercise those in ways that undo some of the unseen power structures of our day and empower people who may think they don't have any power? How can we use our privilege to pull down unseen ideologies and help people see new possibilities or embrace new possibilities beyond ourselves. Yeah, I, uh, gosh, I, I really love that. And I love, I love it for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that it reminds me 
that laws are not laws because they're fair or just. Laws are laws because yeah. the people in power needed to put them in place in order to make what they wanted to happen more likely to happen. Yeah. And that's what we see in this story. And you're right. By pushing this, you know, patriarchal behavior into the area of law, it can have the effect maybe of, of shutting people down and making them feel afraid to act. But it also calls into question whether whether it's a good law, whether it's a fair law. And if yeah. it's not, then then it needs to be changed. Yeah. And that's that's good stuff. And sometimes that's what one individual can do. You know, I mean, it would be asking a lot of Vashti for her to be able to single-handedly transform her patriarchal <laughs> culture yeah. by refusing what her husband has asked. I mean, the risk is always to to individuals. But if she can at least raise the question for... For women and for people in her society that maybe they, maybe this isn't fair and maybe this isn't yeah. the only way it can be happening. That's a really big thing. I had not heard that thing that you had said earlier about Harriet Beecher Stowe and Vashti taking the first stand for women's empowerment. But I really think that that's a pretty sharp reading of what uh, Vashti was up to. And, y- you know, we're still kind of working out, you know, 2,500 years later the functions of patriarchy that continue to persist in our own society. But I like that idea of sort of seeing her as sort of having started something Mm -hmm. that continues to be worked out still Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And we'll see next time. Like I think in Esther's case, like I don't think she tries to become queen because she has some preconceived plan of what she could do as queen. Oh no. But I do think once Mordechai sort of convinces her that now is the time that she needs to act in her capacity, that she is very intentional about the ways that she carries it out from there. So sometimes once you kind of find yourself accidentally in a position, then you realize that you can use it. And I think maybe that's what Vashti has done here as well. Yeah. So next week, we're going to be looking at that story of Esther herself and the way that she goes from being sort of an accidental queen to becoming... Um, the person who saves her people. And we'll be looking at Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and then chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. All righty, I'll be here. (laughs) All right, I'll see you then. Take care. I'll see you then. Have a good week. You too. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. Next week, we'll continue our discussion of Esther with a look at chapters 3, 1 to 11, and 7, 1 through 10. We hope you'll join us. See you then.